For 40 years, police in Saskatchewan, Canada were in the habit of arresting Indigenous men for minor offenses or sometimes no reason at all, driving them out in the wilderness and leaving them there to freeze to death. And to this day, not one police officer has been held accountable, which makes Tom Murphy wonder... Why, 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 why is not a movie? Hello and welcome to Why This Is Not A Movie, the podcast where we look at a moment in history or a book or a story we've ripped from the headlines and ask Hollywood why no one's ever put it onto the big screen. I'm Mike Vago and returning to the show this week is Tom Murphy, a comedy writer and performer who you've probably seen as a background player on Saturday Night Live. That being said, there's nothing funny about this story. Tell us about the Saskatchewan Police's Starlight Tours and why this story needs to be a movie. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me on again. Hey, thanks and, for coming uh, happy back. New- and Happy New Year. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, no, this is a story I just learned about probably within the past year. And, you know, my jaw had just dropped that it hadn't become more of a story. And it has a lot of uh, makings, I feel, to being a very interesting and poignant movie. And especially yeah. in the age of Black Lives Matter and calls for police reform in this country, like these, this is abuses that have been going on for decades in, oh, in Canada. And, you know, it seems very, very relevant for the moment. Oh. Oh, absolutely. And now, uh, you know, within the past few years with the uh, or the past few months with uh, some more stories coming out about the, you know, numbers of missing indigenous women in this country, you know, I think it is very uh, time relevant, too. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to start on a freezing cold night in Saskatchewan in about February 2000. And by freezing cold, I know we're both from Buffalo. Like, this is not that negative eight that we're kind of used to. That's the extreme. This is like every night, negative 30 with wind chills, like negative 40, just completely unbearable. So on this night at a remote power station on the outskirts of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, there was a a night watchman at this power plant just kind of having a regular night. You know, usually nothing happens. I get those hours of like, you know, 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. And all of a sudden there's this loud banging on one of the doors and it's just very confused. He opens the door and finds a man about 33 years old, completely underdressed with icicles hanging off his face. And obviously he lets this guy in and, you know, starts telling this story that is almost incoherent and completely unplausible. So the night watchman just kind of disregards the story and just calls the ambulance and medics immediately. But also around this time, there was a reporter for a local uh, newspaper in Saskatoon named Dan Sakreski, who was uh, looking for a story, you know, kind of around that post-holiday, just like dead lap, especially in a, you know, rather small city. And he had heard about you know, people freezing to death in the First Nations community. So he decided, he's like, oh, yeah, it's like, I'll just do a story, you know, mainly along the lines of, you know, oh, don't get drunk and, uh, you know, be careful when you go outside and just, you know, take care of yourself. Just uh, thinking it was just going to be some like filler story. So he, he starts talking to some people in the First Nations community about, uh, one guy who died, whose name was Lawrence Wegner, who was about 30 years old. And he starts getting through the community that, you know, for years, police have been taking our, you know, guys out to the middle of nowhere, dropping them off. And, you know, we don't see them again until they're dead. And Zakresti is just, he finds it, finds it a little, uh, 
unbelievable. But then he realizes there was another guy, I think 11 days prior, named Rodney Nastis, who was found in about the same exact location, found frozen to death with zero explanation. So he goes and finds this man, Lawrence's aunt, who tells Dan the story about how one night Lawrence had shown up completely drunk, probably you know, on drugs late one night, uh, started screaming something along the lines of like, pizza, pizza, and just complete gibberish. And I think she more or less ignores him, but it, you know, somebody obviously calls the police. And five days later, he's found like missing a shoe in the middle of nowhere. So while Dan Zakreski is investigating this story is when a man comes out, uh, his name's Daryl Knight, age 33, who is the actual person who was banging on the power plant door that day. And he comes out with his story that he was just uh, dropped out in the middle of nowhere. Apparently, he had been arguing with his uncle like very late at night, uh, drunk. There was kind of a common thread with a lot of these. They tended to have a reputation of, you know, uh, having run-ins with the police over like alcoholism, perhaps like drug abuse. So when the cops show up to confront Daryl Knight, they put him in the back seat and the cops start driving and they drive in the opposite direction of the police station. And Daryl Knight asks, you know, where are we going? And the cops are just dead silent. And all of a sudden, they are just in the middle of nowhere, bring him out of the car and rough him up a little bit. And they start to get into their car. And Daryl Knight starts like pleading with these officers, probably sobered up a little bit at this point once he realizes what's going on, tells them, like, you can't keep me out here. I'll freeze to death. And one of the officers was uh, quoted as saying, that's your problem right before they drove off and left him in the middle of nowhere. So what happens next? Does like Sukrasky manage to get these this story to to more people? Oh, and is anything oh, done yeah. about it? So the story breaks and then the floodgates just completely open. And uh, two constables from the Saskatoon Police Department, Dan Hatchin and Ken Munson, are confronted about it and they admit they picked him up, but claim that he wanted to be dropped off there, which is obviously complete and utter bullshit. And their punishment for this is they are suspended for three days with pay, of course. So when let's, let's face it, that sounds familiar. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of been a story going on for decades in this country to say the very least. So when the story breaks uh, people from the first nations community all over Saskatchewan, not just Saskatoon, they contact Zakreski and, you know, kind of tell him what he had, been told, you know, during his interviews. It's like, this has just been going on for years. And a term a few of them used, and a quote from one of the one of the guys was just like, hey, that was just another Starlight tour. And so uh, Zakreski and his team, after getting all these calls, they start to think like, this may have like, how long has this been going on for? That was something that struck me when when the Baltimore police killed Freddie Gray by taking for a rough ride in the back of a van, when the cops have a cutesy name for something, they've been doing it for a long time. Oh, absolutely. I didn't even make that connection, but uh, yeah, no, it's a lot of, a lot of this stuff is usually 
you know, same story, just, uh, you know, different, different settings. Yeah. So as Zakruski and his team are looking back, you know, further and further, you know, just through their archives, they're not really finding much, but then they go back about 10 years to 1990 and they find a snippet of an article concerning the death of a 17-year-old uh, First Nations teenager named Neil Stonechild. And Neil Stonechild was uh, kind of your typical, like, troublemaking 17-year-old. You know, had some run-ins with the cops, but, you know, nothing, nothing too major. And in November of 1990, uh, late one night, freezing cold, drinking with his friends, and uh, they go over to the house of a friend who was babysitting and, you know, kind of start like banging on the windows, you know, causing a ruckus and a neighbor obviously calls the police and a friend, Jason Roy, a friend of Neil Stonechild, you know, kind of does the typical thing, you know, oh, he kind of hides from the police, perhaps lets his buddy kind of take the brunt of it, you know, and once the police start to go, he kind of makes him kind of comes out and sees Neil Stonechild in the back of this police car, a uh, bloodied face with just a look of terror in his eyes, screaming towards Jason Roy, like, help me, help me. They are going to kill me. Five days later, Neil Stonechild was found dead in the middle of nowhere. So when this happens, there was a, uh, like a First Nations constable named Ernie Lutet who was one of three out of 350 Saskatoon constables in the department uh, who was from the First Nations, which makes up about less than 1%, they say, you know, starts to like, he starts to look into this. And the uh, only report he finds on this dead child is that he was about to, they figured he was about to turn himself into a, an adult facility for some outstanding charge. And it doesn't sit well with Ernie because it's like this kid was a juvenile. He would not be, you know, on foot to turn himself into an adult facility. So he met with the Sergeant Keith Jarvis to inquire about it and found out that uh, Sergeant Jarvis had closed the file. And when Lutzis kind of persisted, uh, Jarvis just blew up and, you know, chastised him for meddling and uh, was quoted as saying, you know, if you persist with this, things could happen to you, which uh, could mean about several things, but definitely is perceived as a threat. So, yeah, things can uh, happen to you is def definitely a threat, no matter what the things are. Oh, absolutely. You know, he said it could have meant like, you know, demotion, but considering the uh, actions of this department, probably a little more severe. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, upon this discovery, Sikreski at the newspaper puts the case back into the paper. Also at around this time, the two cops in the Daryl Knight case, the one from February 2000, uh, Hutchin and Munson, they are uh, actually found guilty, but only of un unlawful confinement and sentenced to a uh, hefty se sentence of eight months in a low security facility. And then with the breaking of this stone, uh, the Stonechild case from 10 years earlier, the uh, federal police of Canada called the uh, Royal Canadian Mountie Police, the RCMP for short, they start actually looking into the stone child file and they actually find that it's missing. So, you know, 
Ernie Lutit is, you know, 10 years later, he's still with the, still with the department and is, you know, really trying to get to the bottom of this. And he just decides that all he can do is kind of go through his basement and just try and find anything that he might have that could relate to this case and actually finds out that he has the file at his home. It wasn't removed by the Saskatoon police. He had actually removed it and had forgotten about it because it had always, it had always stuck with him. And that, that's one of those things that like you put it in the movie and it's too, it's too convenient and, you know, you almost feel like, well, that couldn't happen, but. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You may have to take a little artistic license. With well, that. I think you can also frame <laughs> it as like, this was something that was in the back of his mind for a long time. And then now he's got evidence oh, yeah. and now he can kind of take action. Oh yeah. And maybe you could kind of frame it as not like uh, perhaps not that it was, it was assumed that it was taken, but just like what happened. Cause there were, I guess there was some like uh, I guess it was standard practice for closed cases in Saskatoon to, uh, to get rid of them. This was before, you know, a little bit before the days of extensive computer use or so. Oh, yeah. sure. Cause the, the, okay. um, like the Starlight tours go back to like the mid seventies. Oh yeah. They are definitely, yeah. They said there was a case where a woman was left out in the seventies, but it is rumored to at least been going back to the sixties. And, and also if you're the Saskatoon police, you're not that motivated to keep the records of this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, you definitely don't want to leave a paper trail with that. But then upon, so upon discovery of this file, uh, constable Lutit just pretty much notices how mishandled it was. Apparently, Jarvis, uh, the sergeant who had chastised uh, Ernie Lutit and, you know, more or less threatened him, had talked to Jason Roy, the friend, and it had never it had never made the official report. And it was also found out that the family had, uh, you know, when he was being examined by the, uh, you know, coroner, they found multiple wounds on his body that just didn't fit with him just freezing to death. And so, uh, you know, upon like a lengthy, you know, judicial review, the Royal Justice stated that Stonechild was illegally detained and the two policemen whose names, to the best of my knowledge, have not been released. They lost their jobs, but there were no criminal charges pressed. So the result of this, the Saskatoon Judicial Department and the police department had agreed to offer some more uh, in-depth race training within the Saskatoon Police Department and made a commitment to hire more candidates from uh, more constable candidates from the First Nations community. And from there on out, everyone lived happily ever after. And the Canadian government, police department and First Nations just lived in harmony. Right. Obviously, I'm kidding. That. uh Obviously did not happen, but uh, yeah, that was pretty much what you would think was, you know, the end result of all of this. However, fast forward about 10 years later to 2012, a journalism student at a, at a university somewhere uh, was doing a report on this story and went to the Saskatoon Police Department Wikipedia page and found out that it was absolutely not there however knowing that at one time it was and it had you know been determined that it was edited out of the wikipedia page because you know that's what you can do on wikipedia just anybody can go on and 
put anything on there and apparently remove anything. Yeah, and, and so, Wikipedia does have editors who can fix those kinds of things, but they're volunteers and you know have oh, the yeah. largest the largest website on the internet to police. And so, depending oh, on the yeah. website and how much attention is paid to it, you know, you can kind of quietly erase something. And it takes somebody oh, absolutely. Notice, and it takes somebody like that noticing and you know setting things right. Oh yeah, and especially a probably not so frequently searched page like the Saskatoon Police Department. Yeah, exactly. And you know, while going while going through this story and this whole thing of the erasing of the Wikipedia page, I uh, come across a term I had never heard before. That is, I guess, often used in Canada called maple washing. Very, very similar to uh, whitewashing, however, but with huh. the Canadian with the Canadian government and media. I guess there's a long history of just trying to clean up. Uh, Canada's image and try and make it the sparkly image that a lot of us, you know, south of the border have of Canada. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, uh, you know, they have the same uh, issues up there as we do. So I had always, uh, even though this is not a funny story, I just kind of found that term very amusing, maple washing. And I've tried to incorporate it in my vocabulary on a regular basis ever since uh, coming across (laughs) it. Well, that's, that's the funny thing. Like I, you know, I know you as a, as a comedian and a comedy writer and the, the stories you brought to this podcast have been just deadly serious. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. Well, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, humor does, uh, you know, come, just come out of sorrow. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're allowed to have other interests. Oh, for sure. And I, I, you know, I tend to be, uh, it's a little embarrassing to admit I do have a, uh, I definitely do have an interest in the true crime stories, despite I, ha- I tend to be a squeamish person in general. So I kind of more like to read about them or then actually like, you know, see them actually depicted. And it's more or less, I'm very much into the investigation and the things that lead up to these things. And, and that's, I think, the, the thrust of this story, too. You know, I see it almost as sort of a Zodiac style movie about you know, in people investigating and slowly unraveling this because, you you know, you can't, you can't really dramatize like 40 years of police abuse in the two hour movie. Oh yeah. No, it's uh, no, it's definitely, you know, you would, you would have to have a bit of an extended movie and you'd also, yeah, you'd have to definitely kind of go, you know, between 1990 and 2000. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking you like to sort of condense the story to be, you know, filmable. Maybe you focus on Daryl Knight, the man is rescued by the power plant worker in the cold open and then works with Dan Sikreski, the reporter. And I forgot his name, which you mentioned briefly, but the First Nations cop who starts investigating the abuse. Oh, Ernie Lutit. Ernie Lutit, yeah. Well, I, think, I think would have to be a very, uh, you know, very central character in this movie. Yeah, I think, I think those are probably your three leads. And the story is about how the three of them dig into this cover-up and, and you know, bring these abuses to light. Oh yeah. I had also seen, uh, cause actually one of the most, uh, like talked about figure in this is, uh, is Neil Stonechild, the 17 year old who was like, that was like the, that was the first and pretty much only, you know, mention of, uh, something in the paper where it added the word suspicious or that the family was suspicious, you know, pretty much the freezing deaths were just listed in the, you know, in just the blotter, like, you know, uh, you know, man found frozen to death on the outskirts of town. 
Well, that's um, that's something that I was wondering about hearing this. Was this happening often that the community knew there was knew that something was happening but couldn't do anything about it, or or was this these uh, were were these incidents isolated enough that no one saw the pattern until? Yeah, it's um, I'm not exact like I, I'm not in depth into that. I mean, it had to be happening very often for th- the three people in uh, 2000. You know, the two who were found dead, and then Daryl Knight. Those were all within the span of two weeks. So it's very, um, it is very disturbing to think that it could be, that it could have been happening at that high of a rate, especially in, uh, you know, a city like Saskatoon, which I believe is smaller than Buffalo. Yeah. I mean, Northern, Northern Canada, like 90% of the Canadian population lives on the border. Oh yeah. Saskatoon's 273,000 people. 273,000? Yeah. So that's actually a pretty sizable you know, mid-sized city. Oh yeah. It's, it's probably a little, roughly the size of Buffalo, probably a little smaller because Buffalo probably has larger suburbs. So I compare everything to Buffalo just, uh, but that was my, that was my thought that like, you know, Buffalo's surrounded by a pretty like big ring of suburbs and small towns. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would imagine Saskatoon, you're out in the wilderness pretty quickly. Oh yeah. That's definitely what it, uh, that's definitely how it appears. You know, just from looking at, Uh, from looking at on the map, there's a couple of small towns, but Shockingly, I've never been. I'm sure, it's lovely in the summer, and oh, that's another thing because these like, these these incidents were definitely were not happening in the summer. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it was definitely limited to, you know, probably like five months out of the year. But oh, I, definitely I also, it had to be happening enough. I also have to admit my my ignorance of Canadian geography. I was thinking I was thinking Saskatoon was farther north. Uh, it's actually further south than Edmonton. Oh, okay. And so it's um several hundred miles north of Montana. So it's, it is, it is pretty far north and pretty cold. Oh, for sure. You know, just thinking how, you know, the reputation rural Minnesota gets in, you know, North Dakota, you can just imagine, you know, what a few, uh, like a hundred miles north would be like. Well, think about those bleak winter scenes from Fargo and then think about colder than that. Oh yeah. Just, just the thought of this happening is just, you know, it's just the definition of depravity. Oh, absolutely. And there's no, you know, leaving somebody outdoors in a remote area in that kind of weather, there's no, you can't sort of color that as, oh, we just wanted to teach them a lesson. Like you're leaving somebody to yeah. die of exposure. There's no way around. Oh, that. yeah. I mean, yeah. As much as I'm against like waterboarding, this is like torture with all, pretty much certain death. Yeah, exactly. So it's like torture. It's torturing somebody before they die. And, you know, and just the thought of that, this wasn't teaching anybody a lesson. This was just out to torture another human being. Now, if somebody had done this to a, if somebody had done this to a dog, you would want them to spend the rest of their life in jail. Yeah, exactly. Not, not eight months. And yet it wasn't just one person doing this. This was a systemic thing that had been going on for decades. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think Lutzis had said, uh, you know, he had not, he had not really heard about it or it was, you know, it was kind of considered an urban legend. Right, right, uh, right. You know, maybe even in the police department, uh, it wasn't so much in the First Nations community. And, you know, I guess there wasn't much speaking out against because they, you know, their voices were often, you know, not heard. Of course. And they were, they still are, they still are not. And I would think even within the police, you know, abuses are limited to a small subset of the police and often not talked about. Like, I'm sure there were Saskatchewan cops who had no idea this was going on. Oh, for sure. But there were certainly had to be other one, other people who didn't look the other way. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, because I think they said the the two cops who were uh, 
you know, who lost their jobs from the Stone Child case, when they got fired, it was after like 27 years of service. So this was, you know, it, it definitely seemed to be something, you know, Pat, like that just carried through. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's talk about, you know, how we make this into a movie. Uh, so to start, do you have anybody in mind to direct? You know, uh, I was kind of thinking about that. One name that came to mind immediately, because I kind of saw this as like a half, uh, halfly done like this one movie from a few years ago, Spotlight, which you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom McCarthy had done a great job with that film. And I see this kind of, I see this a bit, you know, having that spotlight kind of quality to it, except where the focus isn't just made like so much on, you know, the newspaper investigation. Right, Uh, right, right. And then one that absolutely came to mind, but I don't think he's directed a movie in seven years is, uh, and he may just be retired, but uh, the number one pick for this for me would be Michael Mann. Oh yeah, this seems right right in his wheelhouse. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, with the insider, and Michael Mann is definitely not one who gives you uh you know gives you happy endings. Yeah, he's not going to sugarcoat the story at all. Oh no, for sure. And you know, the happy ending isn't the you know talk about the you know the the race training and you know the you know promise to hire more First Nations candidates. You know, that's not the you know that's not the applause getter at the end when it's it's still trying to be erased by the Canadian Justice Department. And it's more like Donnie Brasco getting the medal at the end. It's, it's, it's a, <laughs> you know, it, it has all the trappings of an uplifting ending, but it just, it rings absolutely hollow. And you realize oh, like, yeah. you know, the, 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 the punishment for multiple murders ends up being sensitivity training. Oh yeah. No, for sure. And then even with the story out there, which again, seems very, very relevant in the 2020s that even, I guess in every era, that even with even with the story in the full light of day, powerful people aren't going to be punished for things that everybody knows they did. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I think the only you know the only like positive ending to this it's you know not the justice it's just it's just it being brought to light. Yeah, exactly. And, and losing you know loot is losing its status as an urban legend when it's now just this happened. And yeah, and the truth coming to light. And, you know, being sort of unable to be covered up anymore, like that, that is satisfying enough in its own, even if it feels like it's not enough. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. When I was looking at directors, I mean, my first thought was right now we have a First Nations Canadian uh, director who's having a, having a moment right now, Sterling Harjo, who uh, created Reservation Dogs. But that's a kind of a teen comedy and he does the dramatic side of it pretty well. Um, yeah. But that, that, but made- that got me thinking to, and when we talk about cast, you know, there's the whole, we can talk about the whole cast of the show, but that got me thinking about uh, sort of researching, are there other First Nations, you know, directors who sort of could, could tackle this and have the stature, uh, you know, to get a movie like this made. And the name I came up with, who I don't know terribly well, just other than from reading about him, is Adam Garnett Jones, who grew up in Western mm. Canada. His debut fire song was at, was at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, and uh, won several awards. That and his follow-up, great, 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 are both you know like serious dramas. They're a little bit more, a little bit more personal stories. But I think you want to, okay. I think you want to ground this in in the personal stories. You know, oh, if you're if sure. you're if you're centering this on Daryl Knight, opening with him, you know, banging on the door of the power plant, having been left alone. A lot of this, I think, you humanize this by making it, you know, his experience that he got okay. too drunk. He got too drunk one night, and the cops tried to murder him, and now 
you know, no one really believes his story and he's got to like live with the, the trauma and the consequences of this. Like, I think you kind of, you want this to be a little bit grounded in people's experiences and the relationships more than just the institutional you know, issue, issues that are, um, you know, behind all of this. Oh no, for sure. And I had never heard it. You said Adam Gardner Jones. Yeah. Uh, Garnet, but yeah. Garnet Jones. Yeah. I think the name sounds familiar. I would have never been able to place anything. I mean, I, done. I have to be honest. He's a, you know, he's a Canadian indie filmmaker who I had not heard of until I started researching for this episode. And, it, and it's not to say you absolutely have to have a, a first nations director, but I feel like someone coming from that community, this is really their, that community story. And it does, it does kind of add something to that. Um, you know, that oh, yeah. being that being said, somebody like Michael Mann who can, you know, take take a, you know, kind of bleak crime story and and really make something compelling out of it. You you know, you kind of can't go wrong there either. Oh, for sure, yeah. And uh, it was I didn't even want to mention because uh, uh, the only you know the only indigenous uh, director I could think of was the guy from Reservation Dogs, which I'm only halfway, through, um, and I'm really starting to like it. It's so good. Oh yeah, it's and, terrific. Uh, and I did like he's he's a phenomenal talent who i think you know mm-hmm. deserves and will probably get a lot more work and um, it was at first it kind of like i was thinking it's like yeah it's like the, the show was like bordered a lot on the show bordered a lot on comedy but then it actually does have some very poignant moments oh so sure he actually and, could be but that also brings one problem with cast which is that um you know the native american actors that i know american and canadian are either like the cast of this show who are teenagers or there's a much older generation of like Wes Studi and Gary Farmer, um, mm-hmm. you know, who are in their 60s and 70s and aren't really the right age to play cops or most of the victims of the Starlet Tours seem to have been, you know, Daryl Knight was in his 30s. Yeah, um, I, had a, I, had a, I wasn't able to really think of, uh, you know, somebody for Daryl Knight, except uh, one, there was one guy, we'll get to him later, who uh, was like a toss up between him or Lutz, uh, Ernie Lutzis, who was definitely a central character in this uh, film. Oh well, let's 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 talk about that now. Like, who who do you have for either one? And and because we really know like the story of these people more than the characters, I think the actors are a little interchangeable. Oh, absolutely. Because, because yeah. you're really kind of creating a character around this person. We don't know enough about them in real life to to say, oh, well, this person's this you know plays this personality type, so they need to be this cat. It's more like who's who's the right age and who's gonna. Oh, for sure. So who I had with this, um, and I have it kind of between Lutzis, who, you know, I, I'm not aware. I, I think Lutzis is now in his late 60s. So like definitely probably like 30s, 40s around the time of this. He's uh, an actor who's having a bit of a, you know, like kind of having like an awakening now. Uh, he's on the show Rutherford Falls, but he's also nominated this year for a Independent Spirit Award. And I think he's getting a lot of traction as an actor named Michael Gray Eyes. I don't know him. And I've only seen limited stuff with him. And that's, uh, he definitely has, he definitely has the presence of a cop. He's about 55 years old, but could, he's a very good looking guy. He could pass for early thirties. And it was definitely when I found out he was 55, I was kind of shocked. Well, it's, and, it's, it's funny. The, um, the actor I had in mind for one of the, for either one of those two roles He's also in his mid fifties, but looks younger. It's uh, Zan McLarnon, who was on Longmire, and he had a great turn on season two of Fargo. And he's oh, yeah. popped up as a supporting character in Reservation Dogs as well. Oh yeah, um, he's he's a he's kind of like a scene stealer in Reservation Dogs. Yeah, he wasn't Fargo. I mean, he was he was one of the leads through like a season of Fargo because the cast changes every year. 
but he was the most compelling thing on screen every, you know, on that season. And the thing is with the, with Ernie Luch at the cop and with Daryl Knight, um, you know, the first victim we meet, the age isn't that important. You want somebody <laughs> who's old enough that they can, you know, who's the right age to conceivably be a cop who's been at it a little while. Um, oh, for sure. You know, but that could be 35 and it could be 50. You <laughs> know, I, th- I think, I think we don't need to, you know, yeah. be, be so precise there. And maybe you find a younger, lesser known actor for, for Daryl Knight. And uh, well, a name that came to my mind, but I haven't heard from him in 10 years. And I almost felt like it was just kind of like typecasting because he was at the time, a younger guy, he was always cast in, you know, native American roles, even though he's rather, you know, ethnically ambiguous is Adam beach. What was, what was he in? I, I think he was on one of the law and orders for a bit. Very good. Well, that's the thing. I kind of remember him being in his you know, early thirties and it was, he seemed to be in every movie that had to, uh, if you saw him, you would 100% recognize him. I know he was a main character on one of the Law & Order things for maybe a season. Oh, yeah. I, I, I pulled up his Wikipedia and recognized his face. He's totally a that-guy actor. And actually, he, most recently, he was in Power of the Dog. He was, oh, was he? Was he? Yeah. I just, I just watched that a week ago, and I didn't... Uh, oh, my gosh. That's... Um, <laughs> what, was, he, was he the guy who had the furs? I, I actually haven't seen it yet. He was Ed, Edward Napa. Oh, was the oh, character okay. name. Um, and he was slipping on a suicide squad. I think the first one. Okay. I mean, he might be in his mid fifties now. I haven't seen him in a while. He's, but, uh, he is 49, 49. And he, okay. And, he, and he's also Canadian. So, oh yeah. Excellent. And, uh, no, going away from the first, another, another key, uh, character in this is Dan Sikreski, the, you know, Saskatoon newspaper reporter who ended up, uh, I guess this work ended up getting a uh, little side note. Got Dan Zakreski. He's now a main uh, a main guy at CBC, which is the Canadian broadcasting channel. It's like the yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we know we know it. It's televised. That channel's on in Buffalo. Yeah, we grew up watching stuff. I, we saw kids in the hall on the CBC before anybody else. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. But and, it's uh, it's like it's like the BBC for those who didn't grow up on the Canadian border. In that it's it's <laughs> that's, um, that's yeah. That's exactly you know, it's a right. ta- taxpayer-funded uh, TV network. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I find him, you know, Zakreski, a huge uh, central character in this as well. And I think I remember from the last time I even said that the last one we did, I tend to go Mark Ruffalo for everything. I think he's <laughs> just absolutely every man. However, I think I found recently after watching Dope Sick, uh, I kind of remembered this guy's always been one of my favorite actors, but you don't see him that much, is Peter Sarsgaard. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he kind of did a role, uh, sim- like, you know, uh, what was the movie? I'm drawing a blank. I didn't even write it down. Shattered Glass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like 20 years ago, which was a fantastic movie that didn't nearly get the uh, acclaim that it should have. And he kind of played the very noble journalist in that. And, you know, 20 years later, maybe people forget that and, you know, not think of him as being typecast as the noble journalist. But Stars think- can do anything. Oh no, he's fan- he's fantastic, and um, and with Shattered Glass, I think Hayden Christensen's performance in Star Wars made people not want to go see that other movie, which was <laughs> you know unfair. And I think people who rediscovered it later realized, oh, he's actually pretty good in this, and it's a good it's a good film overall. Okay. Well, see, I was I was lucky because you you may be aware I'm not into the whole Star Wars, and uh, I'm, I'm one of those. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I haven't seen I haven't seen anything since the uh, first twenty minutes of the Phantom Menace. And I, I you know what? <laughs> that was a good. That was a good point to bow out of Star Wars. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Once, uh, <laughs> once that uh, like 
looked like weird looking dinosaur things started talking. I was like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. And I know he became famous for being such a horrible character, but I couldn't even, that was not a train. That was a train wreck. I wanted to completely drive by. Yeah. There were, there were a lot of baffling choices made in those films, but, um, but yeah, Peter Sarsgaard is good. My, I didn't really have, I didn't really have anybody like that strong in mind. My first process was kind of looking at Canadian actors, even though there's no reason for this character to be played by a Canadian. I was, it was just, I just needed a starting place. And one of the first people I thought of was Ryan Gosling, who, as much as he can do, he's often like romantic comedy leading man. He can also play somebody who's very haunted and serious. And, um, and I kind of thought he'd be a good fit. But then I also thought like, do you want to center this story on the white guy and make the far and away most recognizable actor in it, the white guy? I kind of think it's better with a character actor like Sarsgaard, who, you know, we know has acting chops, but isn't somebody who you look at on screen yeah. and you're yeah, always thinking, oh, that's yeah, Al Pacino. Not, yeah. Like it's not gonna be like he can blend the story. Peter Sarsgaard in the Starlight Tours. Like, no, it's gonna be he's like Sarsgaard would be like a uh, ensemble performer. Well, exactly. And that's what I think that's what you want the story to be. So I I think that's perfect. Yeah, that's uh, kind of what I was thinking. I kind of I always forget that uh, Gosling is Canadian. And uh, but the Canadian, and it's kind of like you know, I actually kind of think thought of going the Canadian route, but like every the only the only actors I think of from Canada are you know like the comedic actors like Jim Carrey and Mike Myers, and it's like this is as you know talented as those guys are, this is not the movie where you're like you know in another dramatic role, even though oh, Carrey no. has done it, but this is not a Carrey, you know, no, not at all, no. And uh, you know, we had kind of talked about. Uh, I had definitely seen, you know, this movie kind of going a little bit back in a uh, back and forth in time, you know, to kind of tell both stories going on. Uh, Cause I do think the Neil, the Neil Stone child case in regards to this is actually one of the most talked about, like Daryl Knight was the one who kind of brought it into light, but the stone child, I think a lot because he was a, you know, he was a young kid. Oh, of course. And Remind me, did that, was, did that, did that happen before or after Daryl Knight or did it come to light? Oh, that happened after? 10, that happened, uh, uh, the Stone, Neil Stone Child was November of 1990, and Daryl Knight was February of 2000. So okay. it was just about like nine, ten years. So I kind of, I kind of saw the, uh, you know, little bit of, you know, in the in the backstory to the, you know, kind of young kid who has the brush ups with the cops. Like that seemed rather innocent enough. I mean, maybe not innocent, but you know, like the typical like uh, troublemaker teen in the. You know, maybe a couple like rocks thrown to windows or whatever. Because also one thing uh, I didn't cover in my synopsis was uh, uh, his mother was about as vocal as she could be to try and get the police to investigate this more. Just completely dismissed. So, you know, this was this was definitely a kid who, you know, obviously had a family that cared about him. He wasn't just some, you know, you know, forgotten. Some kid just left on his own accord. He had a family that like deeply cared about him. And he had a very much a life before this. So you could kind of have a little bit of that, you know, with the incident and probably, you know, maybe a little talk about, you know, the, the relations between the cops and the uh, First Nations community. Oh, sure. At, and around, at around that time. And also just in thinking about like sticking some more actors I like into this. I was talking earlier about how I know a lot of actors who aren't the right generation to play the leads in this. Mm-hmm. But with that story, you could have like Deferro Wunatai from Reservation Dogs that's, playing that's, him as a, in flashback as a teenager. That's, that's the only name I have written. Yeah. Me. And then one of the one of these older actors like West Studio, Gary Farmer, 
you know, plays the plays one of his parents in the present day who's still mourning, mm-hmm. you know, and has felt helpless for, you know, for years, you know, even if that's just a small, the powerful, you know, role when the, when, uh, when the leads go to talk to the family and, you know, find out more about what happened and, and what little was done about it. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the stories of both Daryl Knight and Neil Stonechild like need to be told. And it seems uh, like aside from the incident and there wasn't much to find about Daryl Knight. And because I think the, the investigation to that was a little bit wrapped up because he was there to tell it. Right, right, right. And with, yeah, I think with Stonechild, that was, that was the story that led into the big inquiry. Well, on the subject of these stories being told, it's worth mentioning that there actually have been two movies about the Starlight Tours, none of them a full-length dramatic film. Patasha Hubbard mm-hmm. did a documentary in 2004, Two Worlds Colliding, and Colleen Murphy directed a half-hour short film in 2008, Out in the Cold, which both dealt with these incidents. And I don't know the specifics of which incidents they talked about or the whole history, but those two films are both out there. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, I had noticed that on the, uh, you know, on the Wikipedia page, but they're, they seem kind of impossible to find. and. I mean, I am curious. I have no, I have nothing to back this up, but I think those may have been, you know, made by uh, Canadian filmmakers. Oh yeah, they're both they're both and Canadian I'm, independent films. And I'm kind of curious if they were maybe could have even been more, you know, maybe pushed under the rug by somebody because of this whole uh, conviction by the Canadian, you know, government uh, judicial system to kind of sweep this under the rug. Well, I also think uh, like Canadian independent short film. Doesn't really need to, doesn't really need any help being swept under the rug. Uh, yeah, that is true. You know, unfor- yeah, unfortunately, I, like in, in, you know, indie films on any subject are always kind of striving to find an audience. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I always think of myself as uh, somebody who seeks out independent movies, but even even those never like had never heard of or and wasn't even able to really find anything substantial on like how to view these. I mean, I'm looking at like Two Worlds Colliding won a Canada Award when it came out. And the director won several, won a Golden Sheaf Award for nonfiction at the Orton Film Festival. You know, it, it got a little bit of notice, but I don't know how how easy a Canadian documentary from 2004 would be to find now. Oh yeah, I may I may just have to try and uh, try and find it. I mean, I've listened to uh, about three podcasts on this, and you know, I've tried to read up on you know some of the central players. Like I think Ernie Lutet has actually written a couple books in his. Uh, in his later life, he had to keep kind of become oh, yeah, like, was... an, not like not a celebrity, I would want to say, but definitely a figure. So that's our movie. If you have any thoughts on Starlight Tours or ideas for other movies that need to get made, hit us up on Twitter at YMovie. Thanks to Tom Murphy. Look for him on Saturday Night Live whenever they come back from the COVID hiatus. And you can read student journalism, hear college radio, and listen to other lesser podcasts on our parent website, subjectmedia.org. Keep yourself sane. Get yourself boosted. We'll be back next time on... Why, 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 why is this not a movie?